Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Welcome back to Making Media. Our guest today is Tammy Winter, the commissioning editor of Stripe Press. Man and I have had the good fortune of getting to know Tammy over the past year, and I'm so glad we finally got her on the show. As the name suggests, Stripe Press is a division within Stripe. If you aren't familiar with Stripe, it's one of the most successful private businesses started in the 21st century. Two Irish brothers, John and Patrick Collison, founded the payments processing business back in 2010 and have successfully been fulfilling their mission to increase the GDP of the internet ever since. Now from the surface, there doesn't seem to be great synergies or reasons why a payments business would incubate a publishing arm, particularly one that focuses on publishing or republishing physical books. But as Tammy explains, there is a lot more than meets the eye. We explore the origin story, how Bono fits in, and the practical elements of producing such beautiful books. And as the proud owner of a few of them, they really do stand out on a bookshelf, not just for their covers, but also the curation of ideas, which is excellent. We recorded this conversation on Tuesday morning last week before the incredibly sad news that investing icon Charlie Munger passed away. Stripe Press republished poor Charlie's almanac earlier this week, and we talk about that two-year project with Tammy in our discussion. So if some of the dates seem off to you, that is why. The newly released Stripe Press version makes Charlie's wit and wisdom more accessible and affordable. And I hope it manages to impact many more generations of business people and investors in the same way that the original helped me in my career. You can read it for free online through a truly remarkable website that Stripe Press have put together. And, and I suggest you should, order the hardback copy too. It's a great example of how Tammy and Stripe are making it easier and more enjoyable to connect with some of the best ideas in business. Finally, before we get to the conversation, we were also fortunate enough to publish a conversation on Invest Like the Best this week between John Collison and Charlie Munger. It's a fabulous and wide-ranging discussion that complements the book beautifully. I highly recommend you listen to that conversation and visit Stripe Press for more of Charlie's wit and wisdom. Now, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Tammy. Tammy, you are in charge of the best-looking books in business, and I'm a very, very proud owner of a number of those books. I've always been curious about how they came to be and how Stripe Press actually works. So really, really excited to explore that with you today. And I think I want to start at the very beginning. What is Stripe Press's origin story? And also, what's the purpose? Before I say anything, I should say, I would probably dispute the in charge of title, but neither here nor there. Stripe Press is a really cool team of about less than 10 of us that work on it full time. But it very much is a donut rather than a pyramid. So uh, there's a life cycle to each book, and I think no part is more important than the others. Anyway, as far as where Stripe Press comes from, there's a short version, and then there's a longer and slightly more philosophical version. So I can give you either one. Let's go for the unabridged version, the full story. The unabridged version, I think the question I get most often when I tell people what I do 
is, okay, that's cool. What does publishing have to do with economic infrastructure? Because Stripe Press sits within Stripe. And I think to answer that, it's helpful to know something about who we're talking about and who we're talking to. Let's zoom out a bit. So a very large part of our readership is Stripe's users. So there are millions of businesses around the world, and they really rely on Stripe to start or scale their businesses. But I think in some ways, the Stripe Press audience is both larger and more nebulous, but they share certain attributes. So in this group of people that we're talking about, you have founders, operators, investors, researchers, students, policymakers, and I think for lack of a better term, tinkerers. And so it's a very diverse and diffuse group of people, but they share a particular constitution. I like to say that their feedback loop between idea and execution is extremely short. They have an idea and they act on it. They are working in one way or another to advance the frontier of human knowledge and capability. I think the last thing is that they believe that the world is getting better and can get better, but that doesn't happen by accident. So they're extremely high agency. So that's one part of it. That's who we're talking to. And I think it's helpful when thinking about not just Stripe Press, but probably any media to think about who they're creating for and who they're not trying to talk to. So we are obsessed with that person. I think both of you are that person. But, you know, just as when Stripe was founded, it was still way too difficult to accept payments online. There was this idea at the time that it was a solved problem. So why would you start a payments company? That wasn't true. And similarly, there was a great tweet from David Holtz, the founder of MidJourney, a couple of weeks ago. And he said, you'd be surprised how much of the world's knowledge isn't written down anywhere. And this is really true, especially as it pertains to starting a technology business. So we figured it should be way easier to access clear, actionable information about the critical elements, not just of building a startup, but building a company to last. And also that you shouldn't need to have a direct line to Alad Gill or Claire Hughes-Johnson or Charlie Munger to be able to get this information. That's how Stripe Press was born. So the why is a bit of a natural conclusion. And I think not to spend too much time just talking about Stripe, but I think Stripe's attitude from the very beginning has been to see a problem that might even seem like a solved problem and then decide that we're just going to solve it ourselves. This is true of the origin of Stripe. It's true of things like Stripe Atlas. I used to work in policy and people in policy tend to focus a lot on the public barriers, the regulatory barriers to starting a business. But there are all sorts of private barriers, the amount of time it takes to get a bank account, the amount of time it takes to register a business so you get something like Stripe Atlas. The problem of carbon removal, it was a really nascent market and then Stripe Climate comes along. So there's a logic to it, the lack of really clear, actionable, easy to access information about starting and scaling a business. That's where Stripe Press comes in and also Rip Increment, which for a long time was our magazine that we published specifically for developers. Yeah, that's why. That's the longer, more prosaic version. But the shorter version's fun. Everybody thinks that Stripe Press was founded by Patrick. They have half of the equation. It was a Collison, but it wasn't Patrick. It was John. So the shorter version is that Alad Gill, he was an early investor in Stripe. But Alad Gill is also every startup's best friend. So he's invested in Airbnb, Enduril, Gusto, Stripe, of course, Notion, PagerDuty, Coinbase, Brex, so many companies, so many excellent companies. Figma, Retool, et cetera, Rippling. I hope I'm not forgetting any, but I definitely am forgetting (laughs) some. We can add them in, yeah. He's invested in almost every excellent startup of the last couple of years. And he was having lunch with John Collison one day and told him that he was planning to turn what was then a very successful blog into a book. And he had been blogging for years about all the subjects that are relevant to startups. For example, for no reason in particular, how to constitute a board, something that's very hard to do for first-time startups. And as we're learning for 
not so first time startups as well. And all these different things. John told him, well, why don't you give it to us and we'll put it together in a book and we'll call it Stripe Press. And it's so funny because when we launched Stripe Press, whatever it looks like now, it was a delightful experiment at the beginning. So you can go to Patrick Collison's Twitter account and just search Stripe Press and you'll see that he launches Stripe Press with a single tweet and it just says Stripe Press colon and no marketing. Just there wasn't a Stripe Press and then one day there was. And I don't think that we knew it would into what it is now, but that was about five years ago. And so as far as experiments go, it's still kind of early days, but it's fun that it's lasted this long. So the beauty of many great things is you don't know what they are when they start, but they morph into these beautiful things. You got into a lot there with that answer. And it's always good when I can just cross off questions because you've answered (laughs) them. But I want to dive into something you mentioned there about what the goal is and the mission is, and it ties into Stripe growing the GDP of the internet and Stripe Press, John and Patrick mentioned this on a podcast that Stripe Press can inspire that next wave of entrepreneurs as well. And I think when I look at the books, you have some that are informational guides, almost very tactical. And then you have some which are more inspirational in some ways. I think of the making of Prince of Persia, whether it's inspiring or it's this journey. It's one of my favorites. Oh, I love it. It was absolutely one of my favorites and one that I think about quite frequently. How do you think about those two things when you're thinking about making the books just in terms of these guides or these really tactical informational things versus the more inspirational open-ended ones? I always want our catalog to be balanced between both. And our mission statement is ideas for progress. And that's a lofty mission. So what does it really mean? I think what it means when we break it down to its constituent parts is that we want to create a better landscape for entrepreneurship. But we also want to catalyze research and development. And we also want to, in general, inculcate the idea that problems in the world, big problems in the world, are tractable. So this is true whether we're looking at nuclear energy, which is something that Where's My Flying Car talks about a lot, or just the idea that economic growth isn't just a good thing, but it's a moral imperative. But to answer your question, so we have two big books and really a third, but we'll just talk about the first two. The first is Turpentine. So while we don't just exist, we're not a content arm of Stripe, We are very interested in what our users need. If you're a first-time founder, there are, like I said before, all sorts of things that you don't necessarily know how to do, whether that's constituting a board or hiring, and then particular disciplines within technology, engineering management. So one category of our book, and actually the more successful category of book for us, if you look by the numbers, is the Turpentine book. So there's a great Pablo Picasso quote that I know you two know. When art critics get together, they talk about lofty things like form and structure and meaning. And when artists get together, they just talk about where to get cheap turpentine. So we hope that our books can be cheap turpentine for our users. If you want to go to Harvard Business School, which I'm sure will teach you something about many things, in fact, about being an excellent founder. I don't know what that price tag is. What, 60000 a year? Plus opportunity costs. And counting compared to the much more reasonable $20. We have really got to raise the prices, but neither here nor there. <laughs> that High Growth Handbook is. So then that category of book, we're really looking for the world-class expert in a particular discipline. Alad Gill, not just as an investor, but at several different companies from Google to Twitter to Color Health, where he was a co-founder, has seen all parts of scaling a really successful startup from the very first person to the 10,000th person. He is unusually well-suited to write a book about how to think about taking your startup from the very first stages to potentially an acquisition or going public. And in that high growth handbook, you get interviews not just with him, but also with Paul Graham, 
with Reed Hoffman, with Claire Hughes Johnson, which is the seed of her book. And then you have, I think, an underrated book in our catalog, not underrated by the numbers. It's one of our most popular, An Elegant Puzzle, which is all about engineering management. So Will Larson, who's now the CTO of Calm, but before that was at Stripe, this book about the discipline of engineering management and how to create a really effective engineering organization, that information mostly wasn't really written down anywhere. And same thing for our very last book, our most recent book, at least for the next week, Scaling People by Claire Hughes Johnson. It's amazing. When she talks about where that book came from, everybody wants the story of Claire had just been bursting to write this book and these accumulated lessons of 20 years. And it is. But in fact, the reason for that book was actually quite a practical one. Patrick and John would have coffee or dinner with founders all the time. And they noticed that over and over and over again, the questions that people had were questions related to Claire's domain of expertise. When founders start a company, they think a lot, as they should, about product development, about customer acquisition. But there's this third pillar of a great company, which is the internal foundations, right? And really, Claire's domain is planning for success. If you're a founder and you start, you get your first couple hundred customers or even thousand, you have to grow pretty quickly on the inside. And by that time, it's too late to go back and think about things like, what's our philosophy on hiring? What are our organizational principles? What do we reward in this organization? What do we punish? How do people advance in this organization? How do you think about management? So that's where Scaling People comes from. Those are turpentine books. But the other thing we think about a lot is, I'll give you, I guess, a more sophisticated way that I think about this and then the much less sophisticated way I think about this. What do we think is important enough to meme into the minds of those people we were describing at the beginning, those people whose feedback loop between idea and execution is exceptionally short? What people believe about the world affects what they build or don't build. So if people think, for example, that economic growth is not just like a nice to have, but actually incredibly important and the foundation of progress, if people believe that when we look at where's my flying car, that in order to resolve the climate crisis, maybe the best thing that we can do is not just consume less, but in fact, tap into new and abundant sources of energy. If people believe that our next book is Poor Charlie's Almanac, that it's not just great to do business, but the way that you do business really matters. The way that you conduct yourself, the principles that you adhere to or don't really matters. Those are the things that we just want the next Patrick and John Collison to be thinking about as they build their businesses. And we want the current Patrick and John Collison to be thinking about that too. So that's how I think about that category of book. And the only other part is I also think that my background's not in tech, it's in policy and economics. It was funny when I joined, when I made my way into the industry, how many people have such short memories and also are very unaware of other industries which they can learn from. One other thing that we try to do with the catalog is to provide context to the people who read our books. We want them to have context on the industry. So one of the books I think in our catalog that's quite underrated is The Big Score. And The Big Score is great. It tells the history of Silicon Valley. Mike Malone, who's the author of that book, He was the very first tech reporter at the San Jose Mercury News. So it's in the mid 80s or so when he starts. But the book starts with the founding of Stanford. So the Stanford son passes away and they grant Stanford this land that becomes Stanford University. And on through the Varian brothers, Hewlett and Packard, Fairchild, Semiconductor, Intel, and it ends just as the Mac is being introduced. Or other books like The Art of Doing Science and Engineering, Richard Hamming. He's not necessarily a household name. But he was critical at Bell Labs. He invented Hamming codes. He's also at the Manhattan Project. Both he and his wife worked on the project. 
And at the end of his life, he was a professor at the Naval Postgraduate Academy. So this book is one part unorthodox memoir, another part history of how great things happen, specifically at Bell Labs and then at the Manhattan Project. And finally, an imploration for people to take themselves and their work very seriously. So the last chapter in that book is a very famous essay called You and Your Research. And it's really inspiring for me because I think so many people grow up today. It's not like a lament. I think it's very annoying. Everyone always thinks that things are getting worse. But I do think it's true that maybe culturally we've lost some of the idea that you should maybe not take yourself really seriously, but take your goals and your aspirations and your dreams really seriously. And again, that it's great to be optimistic, but optimism without agency is just Pollyannishness. So we really try to publish things that make, in particular, really young people. I love when I get to talk to founders and people who've created really successful companies, but I'm particularly obsessed when you can catch people when they're teenagers. So having them really internalize the lessons of something like you and your research is great. And in The Big Score, one way to read the book is as a history of Silicon Valley. Another way to read it is as a celebration of people who were sort of unreasonable in every aspect of their lives and to say it's okay (laughs) to be obsessive about the thing that you want to create. You mentioned that your background and roots are in policy. Can you draw the thread for us from there to here? I would love to get your personal story before we go further into the Stripe Press. The thread is dramatic or not dramatic. The thread is hard to follow. I'm not super old. I'm 28, but... I wouldn't classify that as old as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it feels old, but I'm now at the age where I get to talk to really sharp young people who are thinking about their careers. And everybody always wants to know, how can we repeat a particular path? I feel really strongly that you can basically not repeat any paths. And it's like I was talking about the art of doing science and engineering. I'm basically the anti-Hamming. Hamming's entire thing was you should have a vision of greatness and you should execute on it and That's certainly true for a lot of the people I know who have done great things. Just look at my sister. My sister's always known that she wanted to be a doctor and she's finishing up in med school in May. I was basically the opposite. So I followed my curiosity throughout my career. So I think the way to understand my career is that I have been following Tyler Cowen around for the entirety of it. So I started off, I studied economics at SMU. And when I graduated, I really wanted to go work with Tyler Callen or find some way to get on his radar. I loved Marginal Revolution and Marginal Revolution University. I tutored in college. And so I would use he and Alex Tabarrok's videos to teach, but I also read Marginal Revolution. So I went to Mercatus and it was really fun and I got to do research and I was primarily working on cronyism and corporate welfare, but also barriers to entry. So things like occupational licensing certificate of need laws, which make it really difficult for new hospitals to open, scope of practice laws, which make it more difficult than it should be for nurse practitioners or physician's assistants to practice. They can do a lot of the things that a doctor can do, but for whatever reason, it's just super difficult. Now, as I was working there, it was great because you're working with some of the most interesting and effective scholars. I think that George Mason University is really underrated, even though it's increasingly very highly rated. But I just would do whatever I could to get on Tyler's radar. So I would drop stuff outside of his door, which was ridiculous. And I guess my thought process was, well, if I do this enough, he'll have to invite me in and then we'll become best friends. And then who knows what we'll do together. But it never actually happened that way. I ended up actually meeting him at a book launch party. And he was like, you know, you can just come say hello. And I'm like, what was all this for? And he has really become, for me, a really important mentor. And it's not like I talk to Tyler all the time. But he's one of those people who is constantly working in the background of your career, moving obstacles out of your way or 
vouching for you in rooms that you're not in. And I just owe him a tremendous debt of gratitude. Now, after that, I left and I went to work on Charter Cities. And that was extremely fun. I was born in Nigeria. I care a lot about, just like I said, economics and growth. It's easy and it's interesting to talk about economic growth when you're talking to people whose entire lives are, we take it for granted in the US. We're sitting here having this conversation over Zoom. If I were in Nigeria where I was born, even if I had all the money in the world, power there is just very unreliable. There's a great quote from Shalaz, the founder of Paystack, which Stripe acquired recently, but he was talking to YC founders and he was talking about how when you're in Nigeria, being a founder requires you to think like a state. You don't just have to think about product and customer acquisition, but in fact, you have to think about how to supply reliable power to your employees. So there are all these obstacles. So when people talk about economic growth and the way that it makes living standards better, I think about what happened for my grandmother when she could finally afford having a stroller. At my age, she had three kids and was pregnant with her fourth and what that did for her and for her business. So I care a lot about economic growth. So I spent a lot of my early 20s traveling between Zambia and South Africa and Kenya and other places. And it was really cool to talk to, for example, the central bank governor of Zambia and to talk to them about the potential lessons for places like Singapore or Shenzhen for a Zambia. And I would meet people like Muya Masokotwane, who's built one city, is now working on a second in Zambia from the ground up. And at the same time, you had a lot of people in Silicon Valley who were very increasingly interested in charter cities as well for different reasons. But that was my first introduction to the Valley. I happened to meet Patrick Collison at an event. And once again, I was like, look, I don't know anything about Stripe, but I love Stripe Press. In particular, I love Stubborn Attachments. I love Tyler. Patrick and Tyler are very good friends as well. And so that became an extra connection point. So I spoke at Stripe later that year and I spoke about Charter Cities. And that's where I ended up meeting my first manager at Stripe, Sasha DiMarini, who is an incredible woman. And I could honestly talk about her forever. So this is 2019. And then in 2020, I was asked if I would maybe consider interviewing at Stripe. So I did. And I started at Stripe one week before we went remote because of COVID. We might have buried the lead there with your background, which is quite fascinating. And that recent name, we got to work with Sasha on a project recently, which was excellent. So you've intersected with a lot of very, very interesting people throughout your career. It's very obvious the connections that you've made organically, I think, before you got to Stripe, which is very interesting to hear how all of it ties together. Some of us step into the organizations, and then we meet people on behalf of the organizations. This feels like it was very organic. The thing I'm not mentioning is that my biggest career tool was the artist formerly known as Twitter X. I grew up in Garland, Texas. I was born in Nigeria, grew up in Texas, and I went to SMU. So I didn't necessarily have a ton of exposure to people working in technology or in finance or anything like that. Actually, that's not true. Both of my parents work in finance. But I just was really interested in economics pretty early on. And the great thing about Twitter is that at the time, I was 18 when I started tweeting. So about 10 years ago, you could tweet at Tyler Cowen and people would tweet back at you. This is insane. There is basically no other tool where you could talk to the people that you admire. And for me, the celebrities were brilliant economists that I was obsessed with. There's no other platform where you could talk to these people. So I have gotten basically every job I've ever had through Twitter. And at first when I was tweeting, it was really deranged stuff. I've lived many lives online. At first I was tweeting, I was very political and tweeting a lot about economics. And there are all sorts of funny detours ideologically. But it was great because it was a way that if you had 
an otherwise unremarkable background. SMU is a good school and I really enjoyed it. And I did research in the business school because for whatever reason, it was easier to do research in the business school than it was in the econ department. But Twitter became a really cool way for me to distinguish myself. And it was helpful because I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't grow up with tons of family connections. I grew up, like I said, in a lovely and quiet suburb of Garland, Texas, the suburb of Dallas, rather. So Twitter was a really, really powerful tool. You hear the story again and again and again. I think people think now the platform's been through a lot in the last couple of years, but I still think it's an incredible tool to meet people, to find your people. It's a way to turn yourself into a bit of a lighthouse. So it's not always the easiest to go out and get people to take you seriously. We valorize the cold email. And it's not to say don't cold email, do it. But another way to help yourself is to turn yourself into a lighthouse for the people that are interested in the things you're interested in. So for me, that was a really cool way to demonstrate competence. Even if otherwise, I didn't go to California until I was working, I started working at the Charter Cities Institute. So 2018 was my first trip to California. So I'd been to Zambia before I'd been to California. So I think Twitter was a huge, huge help to me. It's nice to balance the scales while everyone else is deriding the platform. I also got this job through that particular technology. So I wholeheartedly agree with what you just said. If we go back to Stripe Press, and you mentioned that it has a very lofty mission in terms of ideas for progress, how do you measure success relative to that mission? Is it something that we think about a lot in terms of media businesses? It can be hard, particularly when you're publishing physical books. So I'd love to hear you riff on that. This is a great question because when we were starting, my predecessor, Brie Wolfson, she, I think, is just an incredible person. I think she's one of the sharpest people I know, and she's become one of my best friends. And I love looking back at the early documents that she and Sasha and Everett Digback, another colleague of mine who was like my creative partner for the first couple of years at Stripe, they were very interested in not measuring success the way that traditional publishers would. So if we think about, again, who we're talking to and we're talking about Really, our focus is people who don't necessarily have a lot of time. So they're not picking up scaling people because they just felt like reading a 500-page book. When it comes to turpentine books, what success looks like is somebody saying, I didn't know how to do this. And because I picked up scaling people, hiring got that much easier. Hiring is the longest chapter in scaling people. The whole idea is this information should be highly actionable and highly specific while still being general enough that you can modify it and choose your own adventure. So when it comes to turpentine, I couldn't tell you how many times I get emails. Patrick gets emails. John gets them. The authors get them. This is something I didn't know how to do. And it helped me do this. And it's cool because you have these conversations with people. A friend of mine, Mishka Oryksai, she is a founder and she was born and raised in Pakistan. She now lives in California. But her first company called This Code Works, the Pinterest of Code. For her, High Growth Handbook was an extremely helpful manual because if you're a woman entrepreneur anywhere, but in Pakistan in particular, these are resources that you don't have. But then you also will have this conversation with Toby of Shopify. The first time I met him, him telling me, I love Stripe Press. I love Shopify. So when it comes to Turpentine, the goal isn't so much to be able to show Patrick and John these incredible sales figures. However, we are running a business here. It's really to help the people that we exist on behalf of do things quicker. But then it's more nebulous on the big ideas side. There, the goal really is to exact change. One of the things I loved about Mercatus is that you could not notch something as a victory if you didn't literally see policy change as a result of something you published. So the bar was very high. There are plenty of think tanks who just write papers all day. And I'm sure they're very good, but they don't do anything. Mercatus's bar was that you do not get to call something a victory if you're on the monetary team, if you don't literally see a rule change at the Federal Reserve. It's not a victory. 
So similarly, I think the proof is in the pudding when it comes to who are we influencing? Who's actually making different decisions as a result of the books that we're publishing? I think a really cool victory, and you don't always get something that's this clear cut, but this is really cool. So I love Where's My Flying Car? Josh Doris Hall, he's this incredible mad scientist. He's a world-class nanophysicist, but he also wrote a lot about just energy. He's an energy fanatic. And he has this curve called the Henry Adams curve that he names. And the idea is the energy intensity of a civilization or energy usage. And basically what he notes is that until about 1971 or so, the energy, the Henry Adams curve had been increasing about 7% per annum and we stopped. So he basically argues that if we look at why the U.S. and not just the U.S., but the Western world seems to start stagnating in 1971, energy and our disavowal of continuing to create more abundant energy sources has a lot to do with why we start stagnating. And had we kept on that path on the Henry Adams curve, our GDP would be four times what it is today. And his question is, how can we recover that future? So Bono, noted nuclear energy hater, he was given a copy of Where's My Flying Car by John at this incredible festival called the Dalkey Book Festival in Ireland. It's huge there. So he got the book. And you never know what's going to happen when you give somebody a book. You hope for good. So you can imagine my surprise when last summer I'm reading the New York Times and Bono is doing one of those books that really inspired me. And when I see that he's flagged Where's My Flying Car as a book that was very meaningful to him. And now Bono is a pro-nuclear advocate. And can we claim total credit for that? I'm not saying we can, but it's very rare that you get something so clear cut or seeing Revolt of the Public, which really was, I think, a new and novel framing of thinking about the ways in which institutions lost the trust of the public. When we see Revolt of the Public being cited by universities and by the IMF in reports, those are the things that we're looking for. We're looking for stubborn attachments to be cited by founders and policymakers as Tyler in that book he's not just saying economic growth is good, but in fact, it's a moral imperative. So if you are in a position to do anything about growth, whether you're an entrepreneur or a policymaker, identifying policies and working to increase economic growth, that's not just a good thing to do. That is actually your duty. You have an obligation to do that. We really are looking for those books to seep into not just the public consciousness, but specifically the minds of people who are in positions to do something about the issues that we care a lot about. So that's how we're marking success. But I have to say, I don't think anything will be as satisfying or as exciting as when I get to talk to a 12-year-old. At Stripe Sessions last year, I was there and I met this 14-year-old girl who just happened to be there. She had to be the youngest person there. I think there was like a baby there or two, but she's a 14-year-old. And you're thinking, what is she doing at Stripe Sessions? She's just particularly interested in the latest releases of Radar. But she came and I was just, oh my gosh, I have to give her all the Stripe Press books. And I got an email from her a couple of months later. And it was just the sweetest thing in the world because I remember what it was like to be an 18-year-old and to not have tons of money for the Stripe Press books. I will say one more thing, which is that I was a pioneer. Pioneer still exists, but it was created as earlier stage YC for just young, promising talent anywhere in the world. When I was at the Charter Cities Institute, we became pioneers. And that was actually, that trip was my first trip to Stripe. And that's where I meet Sasha and John Collison for the first time. We went to the library, we were given a tour, and I was just looking at the Stripe Press books. And at this point, I'm not making a ton of money. So it's like I have tons of money to just spend on Stripe Press books. And I was looking at them and Sasha was like, well, you can take more than one if you want. And I just never forgotten that. It just meant the world to me. And so I'm excited. I love when you get to talk to somebody who's built something incredible, who loves our books. 
But I think that there's nothing really like talking to the 18-year-old in Dublin who has never been asked to take themselves and their ambitions and their goals really seriously. Well, it's super interesting because we think about this a lot and there are the things you can measure. And then there are the things you can't measure, but you know are true. And sometimes they don't always show up in the New York Times with a specific reference to a book. But but increasingly with Stripe Press books, they are. I have to say that. Exactly. And you collect enough of those, it becomes a body of evidence that I think is hard to deny, which is always going to be tricky. And it takes organizations with longer term visions and a willingness to understand that this isn't just going to be a direct number thing that you can measure. But I think those things are super, super important. There has to be this willingness to believe in things that you can't always measure. There's an analogy I love. And I told myself I wasn't going to finish this conversation without talking about this. My beloved Dallas Cowboys. The Dallas Cowboys are, in fact, a pretty good model for how we got here. What do I mean by this? Okay. So in 1960, that's when the Cowboys are founded. And then just three short years later, Dallas became the city that killed the president. We're talking about this in the wake of this. It's been 60 years. And then just 15 years later, suddenly the Cowboys are America's team. I think people, when they think about the Cowboys, are really hyper-focused on Jerry Jones. But if you go back to the beginning, the founder of the Cowboys is this oil billionaire called Clint Murchison. So he makes two really important hires, the president and the GM, Tex Sham, and then Tom Landry, the iconic Dallas Cowboys coach, the most beloved Dallas Cowboys coach of all time. So they're the triumvirate. So what happens? Well, nothing. Actually, worse than nothing. The Cowboys lose for the first four or five years of Tom Landry's head coaching career. And everybody's like, fire this guy. What are you doing? This is ridiculous. Dallas, again, is not in a great place as a city, but we're just losing. And so what Sham and Murchison decide to do is to extend his contract. They give him a 10-year extension. And again, this is not the thing that, look, I'm not a coach myself. I'm not a GM. I've never owned a team, although hopefully that's something I can do in the future. But I don't think you generally, the conventional wisdom is not you extend the guy who's been losing for four years, but they do. And what happens? Well, the very next year, the Cowboys start winning. And by the time Tom Landry leaves, he gets fired by Jerry Jones. They've won two Super Bowls and the Cowboys are America's team. And I think people, again, they overfocus on Jerry Jones. But the great thing was that Clint Murchison and Tech Sham had the foresight to say, look, we want to set up this organization in such a way that Tex feels that he has total creative freedom. We understand that if we're going to make this into a winning organization, it's not actually going to be a one-year play or a two-year play or a three-year play even. But in fact, it's going to be a longer-term play. So by the time Tom Landry leaves, then in the next era, that's really arguably the Cowboys' greatest era. But there is this early creative freedom and trust that was placed in him. And I don't think you get the same results without that. And I think similarly... I'm often talking to people about how do you make your own Stripe press, which I think is that in and of itself is just a funny question. But the question I think that's a better one is what is the organizational setup that allows for a thing like a Stripe press to be started and also to be sustained? And I think you really do then need a Clint Murchison or a Patrick and John Collison who aren't constantly breathing down your necks to ask, okay, what is the business case for giving an 18-year-old in Pakistan a free Stripe press book? And that's a really beautiful thing. And it's a lucky thing. And it's quite a rare thing as well, which doesn't mean I'm just out here spending money. You'd be surprised at what you can get done on a surprisingly lean budget. I think the, on the sports analogy, many people reference the Bill Walsh book, The Score Takes Care of Itself. And his first two seasons, he was the worst coach in the NFL. It was telling where 
whether it's the J curve, the hockey stick, whatever it is, sometimes there needs to be that foundation building before there's the ultimate launch. So yes, I like any time we can pull the sports in, even if it's the Dallas Cowboys, which <laughs> we'll push that aside. I did have one other question, which is why physical books? And thinking about technology business, very embracing of online with blogs, Twitter, everything. Now, I do know that both John and Patrick appreciate physical infrastructure and everything. So there's a physical element to this. But I was wondering if there's anything there specific to why physical books. I mean, what's more enduring than the physical book? What is a technology that is more enduring than that? There are very few. So that's why there is almost nothing more enduring than books, whether we're talking about the Bible, the earliest scrolls. It's really fun to watch the scroll prize, which Nat Friedman has been helming with Professor Brent, I can't remember his name, in Kentucky. There's nothing more enduring than the written word. So that's why. But I think as far as the physical side, people often say, can you please just publish them in soft cover? Is there any reason you need to go to this particular expense? They all need to be hard covers. And to them, I say, we are, in fact, working on our first soft covers. Breaking news. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. You guys heard it first. But I think that ideas that are timeless, that we feel are timeless, deserve timeless boundings. They deserve to be presented in such a way that, in fact, with our books, you can judge the book by its cover. I think it's important not just to think of the utility, but also to make it beautiful because beauty is a teacher. So I think that the presentation should, if we really believe that the ideas in these books are deeply meaningful and useful, you should have an outer appearance that suits it and then is similarly timeless and not easily disposed of. To tie in with that and just the concept of beautifulness and Patrick on Invest Like the Best recently talked so well about why he cares so much about how things look across the whole organization. Stripe Pest fits square within that. I would love for you and with Poor Charlie's Almanac coming out, I would love for you to talk us through how these books come to be and how you think about the design and what they look and feel like. So when it comes to publishing a book, there are basically five elements that all publishers do to varying degrees of skill and craft. So one is the editorial, choosing what gets published, but also the work created to create a final piece of writing. And at Stripe Press, I really do think Stripe Press just has the greatest managing editor in the world, Rebecca Hiscott. She just is incredibly talented. She works really closely with all of our writers. And then the production, defining the look and the feel of a book. And we really love, we offer something called an author questionnaire because it's extremely important to us to understand what each author's goals are with their book. What do you want to have happen in the world as a result of you writing this book? The idea is writing that makes things happen. So we don't just want the work to stay on the page. And they work with our brilliant creative team. So our creative director, Jeff Halber, he spends a lot of time with the author questionnaire because he really does want to understand what are they telling me is important about this book and how does it need to be represented visually? We have an incredible typesetter, Kevin Wong, who thinks about how the book should be organized internally. You'll see when you get Poor Charlie's Almanac that there are lots of QR codes because there's going to be a first-time digital experience that I'm extremely excited about, but I can't say too much about just now. And then you have other folks on our design team, Josh Miranda, who's our art director, who is the person responsible for a lot of the amazing covers that you see. For them, it's really cool how many things they make that never actually see the light of day. So for any cover you see, there might have been 30 to 50 other alternative covers. And sometimes we share with those alternative covers, the covers that would have been, but we're constantly iterating and fine tuning. And ideally, there are a couple of people that we really want to be delighted by each cover. Number one is the author. We want them to feel like this design has 
captured some important essence of this book that they're publishing, right? And sometimes that means rev after rev after rev. And there have been times when we've even pushed back a launch because it was just that important to make sure we had the exact right cover for the particular book. Sometimes Patrick, he obviously is busy running a company, but he will often offer input, which is really helpful on the design because he also has something, an idea in his mind of how things should look. But it really just speaks to the obsession of the folks on our team. Every person on our team, we're so terrified that you're going to pick up a book. The people who, again, who are reading our books, they don't necessarily have time to waste. And it's the only resource that you just can't make more of. So we're always terrified that we're going to be wasting your time. You should feel that by picking this up and spending however long you spend with it, that your life has been made better in some way, that you've learned something, that you know how to do something, that you feel inspired in some way. And every single piece of how you interact with the Stripe Press book should contribute to that feeling, right? So our team, we just had an onsite and it really just is the most creative group of people. And it's so fun. It's like doing an apprenticeship with the best people in their particular trade, whether it's typesetting or editing or Bobby, who is the mastermind who gets the books everywhere. I've learned through working with him and through working on Stripe Press the intricacies of the global supply chain and all the ways that things can go wrong. And he's a magician. So everybody just has this obsessive focus with what we do. It's just fun. It's cool. Very well said. And how do these projects, books come to be? And in particular, where did Poor Charlie's Almanac originate from? So each book is different in how it comes to us. But often, more often than not, a lot of straight press is relationship-based. So some of these books are not necessarily on the market for a reprint. And I think Poor Charlie's is a really good example of that. So some of our earliest books, Dream Machine or Where's My Flying Car, these are reprints, but they're reprints that we acquired on the basis of pre-existing relationships. Dream Machine was genuinely one of Patrick's favorite books. And so Mitch Weldrop, it was easier to get that book. And by a similar token, Patrick and John had dinner at Charlie's a couple of years ago. And what I'm told is that that dinner, three hours into it, Charlie is like, all right, what's next? And John and Patrick are like, we're tired. So they're flagging and he's not, and they just keep going. And okay, thought nothing of it. They continue that relationship. And in the summer of 2021, we get a message from Peter Kaufman, CEO of Glenair, former chairman at Wesco, and longtime collaborator of Charlie's. We got on the phone with him and he said, look, they had gotten a bunch of requests to reprint poor Charlie's Almanac, but they just were never that interested. So we actually didn't ask for it. It was one of these really beautiful and totally serendipitous moments where they gave it to us. And it wasn't totally clear we would get this initially. We're talking in the first call, and I think Peter's trying to size this up. Who really are these kids? What do they know about Berkshire, about Charlie's Almanac? I was, I think, 10 when the original came out. So we're just talking, and he tells us at one point that the publishing company that they worked with is based in Marceline, Missouri. And I was like, there's only one other thing in Marceline, Missouri, and it's Walt Disney's hometown. What are you doing in Marceline, Missouri? And he's like, what do you know about Marceline, Missouri? And we just got into it. Peter is a huge Disney fan. And so am I. That's where we hit it off. And it was so cool. But initially, what we were only going to do, the question was, we want to make Poor Charlie's as widely accessible as possible. A lot of the early obsessives of PCA are not in America, but in fact, in India, in China. So their goal with giving us PCA was really to make it as widely accessible as possible. And it took some convincing to say, well, why don't we also republish the book because I love PCA, but it is not a beach read in the sense that you cannot just take that anywhere. It's a great weapon should you ever need. It's not the most portable. And so they said, okay, okay, we'll also let you republish it. And we trimmed it a bit. 
But it's been so fun. The process of putting that book together has been the process of really understanding how a great person has lived his life. At the beginning, it was amazing. I would have calls every other week with Peter Kaufman. And I was terrified at the beginning of doing something wrong. And he just said, you're not going to mess this up because we won't let you. Which is both really gratifying and also... I think that's terrifying, isn't it? Okay, no pressure. So it's been so fun for the past two years. Really, that's how long it's taken to, one, develop this digital experience so that when when we launch on December 5th, anybody will be able to read the book in its entirety online for free. But also for people who are true believers or just want the book, we'll have the physical book as well. So the substance of it hasn't really changed. We've kept the 13 speeches and talks that make up the core of it. John Collison wrote a new foreword. But we just think that this book is such a classic. It's so important. It's not just about how to do business, but a way of doing business that I think is exceedingly rare, increasingly rare. So I'm excited for next week. You all are going to be the ones to launch the interview that we recorded last September with Charlie at his house in Los Angeles with John Collison. And there are more things that will be coming out. I'm super excited and I'm grateful to be working with you all. I'm a huge fan of Colossus in general. I think you all are one of, if not the freshest, new network of editorial, of media. You tackle so many different things from business breakdowns to founders. And what I love about y'all is that working with you is so much fun. So much of a key to what we do. It's surprising, but in editorial, lots of people are not that nice. (laughs) They're not the easiest to work with. We hear this all the time from authors, how terrible of an experience they have. So being delightful is in fact a competitive advantage and you guys have that in spades. So I'm grateful to get to call you guys friends, but I'm also a huge fan. That's very kind of you. I'm glad that this is not a video because I'm blushing currently. It's mutual. Yeah, it's very mutual feeling. And we really can't wait for next week. We have the fortune, as you said, of highlighting John and Charlie's conversation. And as someone who's listened to it a few times already, it truly is excellent. Predictably excellent, but it is excellent. I want to get you out on this final question. And you, like us, are an outsider in the media industry. And you're making content. I hate to call it content. I do too. I really do hate that word. Apologies. You're making books (laughs) that we absolutely love. I would love for your reflections on the media industry and what you've learned about doing what you do now relative to where you were a decade or so ago. I think it's really helpful to not have grown up working in media, but I've been steeped in it from a young age. I would steal my dad's copies of USA Today or Time Magazine or Newsweek. And so I've been reading and watching for a long time. So when I talk to people about media, I think the thing that is so critical and that people often forget, especially when you get really big, that your audience is huge and super diffuse. It's hard to know who they are. You really want to know who you're talking to. You want to have a sense of the uncommon denominators of your audience. And what is it that they care about? What do they respond to? And I know it seems kind of ridiculous, but with every book that we consider, we are thinking about, I literally have people in mind. And I think about how would this person react to it? How would that person react to it? We're just obsessed in the same way that you want your business to be obsessed with a customer. We are obsessed with our readers. And you can tell when somebody just really, really, really obsesses over whoever's on the other side of what they're making. So I take a lot of cues from interesting, alternative, and strange media efforts. I think the whole Earth Catalog is just incredible. You think about the whole Earth Catalog's principles, They wouldn't publish anything in there that wasn't practical, that wasn't actually a tool, but also it had to be something that was fairly cheap to produce and procure and could be easily accessed from anyone in the U.S. Or you look at Craig Maud. Craig Maud, one, 
God willing, we can get a book from him one day. But he takes so much of what he does so seriously. Often his most notable writing for me, at least, is his writing about walking. Walking? How is it that walking can be the way that he writes about walking can unlock these incredible new worlds? (laughs) I think about Kevin Kelly and his book, Vanishing Asia. He's an anthropologist. He is constantly evaluating cultures and trying to understand what we can take from them. And you see a lot of this in just the DNA of the long now in general. Xander Rose, he has his research project on extremely long-lived institutions. These people are obsessives in a particular way. And they're obsessed with things that nobody else would be obsessed with. It's ridiculous. Obsession is infectious. Yeah, exactly. So that's actually what I'm really obsessed with right now and who I'm taking a lot of cues from. I love people who are unreasonable about whatever it is they're studying, who are tinkerers, because I think that what they do, it's the Kevin Kelly line of a thousand true fans. You don't actually need to create for everybody. It's actually totally reasonable and maybe even more powerful to be super, super clear about who you're talking to, who you're not trying to talk to. And by doing that, you can end up creating something that resonates with a lot more people than your original audience. I'll say a couple other examples. I'm obsessed with Andy Matushak. I think half of what he does, I'm like, I don't even know what's going on over there. But he's so driven by his own curiosity and it makes everybody else want to know what he's up to. I think Brian Potter, who's an upcoming Stripe Press author, he writes mostly about production efficiency. Genuinely, why do some things get cheaper and other things don't? And he writes about, he's a civil engineer by trade. How much is there to say about the economics of steel? It turns out there's a lot to say about the economics of steel. And you all too. I don't know. I love people who are just incredibly curious. And I take a lot of cues from people who were this exacting in their craft. I love Thierry Mugler. I think there's lots of designers that are incredible, but I love him. What I love so much about him is that he had so many inputs. He was a huge sci-fi fan. And so you even see this in his runway shows. He had multiple runway shows that are like really sci-fi themed. His whole thing was that fashion can do a lot of things. And one thing it can do is give you a perception of yourself that you didn't necessarily have before. So his whole thing was he wanted to design for the woman who was the force of nature. And you think about the time he's coming up in the 60s, 70s, 80s, where the role of women is really being reexamined. And everything he does is in service of creating this woman who is a force of nature, down to the perfumes that he manufactures, Angel and Alien. Alien is extremely polarizing perfume. It's very jasmine forward. You love it or you hate it. But that's exactly what he wanted. People who are forces of nature, in fact, are often polarizing. So honestly, I don't pay a lot of attention to the ways in which maybe traditional media is flailing because I'm not sure that it would be particularly helpful. But I am really obsessed with, you can't see me, but earlier I was wearing my founder's sweatshirt. David Senra, this is not revolutionary. He sits in his room and he reads biographies and then he writes to himself about what he's learning and then he delivers that content to you. This is not revolutionary. But he did it originally for an audience of one. For years, he was doing that and nobody was listening. He said that, not me. He said that. And now Founders is huge. Everybody's listening to Founders. So I feel like there's a lot more to be learned from those people because those people don't burn out. You actually can't compete with David Senra because he's never going to stop doing what he's doing. Stuart Brand, Whole Earth Catalog was amazing. But right now, he's writing a serialized book for our partners, Works in Progress, on maintenance, the maintenance of everything. And it's so funny because he's writing them a chapter at a time. But it's taking him a lot longer because he gets into these incredible digressions about particular things. This man is 85, almost 86 years old if he's not already 86. And he's still doing this. These are the people that I like to take my cues from. And what a wonderful way to close. I have some homework to do. You do. You do have homework. Thank you so much for letting us peek inside the curtain at Stripe Press. 
there are a million more questions we have and we'll have to get you back on the show next year thanks for having me now we finally tied tammy down into a recording we've been trying to get her on the show for a few months she promised and said hey i'm going to come on making media it's a matter of when not if and finally we managed to make it happen and i'm very glad we did same it was great to do we've had conversations with her prior to this getting her on mic hearing more of her background which i didn't have the full extent of was a lot of fun and then just getting to ask some of the questions that i was always curious about in particular it's very clear what they're ultimately trying to do and i think how you measure some of those things is always tricky but just hearing a different perspective on how they're measuring things and to me there's something interesting about that thread of what does it mean if you can't measure it one side of the equation. But I think a lot of the most interesting things are really, really hard to measure. And inspiration or unlocking of ideas, presenting people with the tools that they can then use to create things. There's a real value to that. And it is difficult to measure how that's resonating with your audience. But that doesn't mean it's not worth it. And yeah, it's just really neat to get a totally different perspective from people we respect a lot that are doing something similar to what we're doing with a different business attached to it. There's something to be said about, as you could hear, she's incredibly intelligent and eloquent, and the people she's operating with are very accomplished as well. There's so much to be said in these creative endeavors where you have to satisfy yourself first. So I feel like this is a really genuinely good piece of output. Talked about Claire, who obviously scaled Stripe to a really big business. Clearly, if she's really happy with that book, the chances are the book's going to be pretty good. And that goes with all the authors that they work with and just their own sense of what's good and what's not is really important to this stuff. And we talk about a lot on the podcast side. We don't always get it right, but we hope that we have a decent barometer for whether a conversation is useful or interesting and whether it's not. And you have to have that because particularly when you're publishing physical books and even in podcasts, you don't get the chance to engage with your audience one-on-one very often. Often people will send us stuff, but then it starts to feel like anecdotes and you think, well, maybe I'm missing the big picture here. So that internal sense of, is what I'm putting out into the world here, additive, useful, interesting, engaging, all the above. And I think that's what came through from Tammy as well. Absolutely. Do you have a favorite book? The Richard Hammings book is really, I loved. And there are chapters in there that I just couldn't understand. But the other chapters more than made up for it, and particularly his list of how to do great work and make a great living in a career, that sticks with me a lot. And I make copious amount of notes on that book. And there's something about just them being so beautiful. Which is your favorite book? The Making of Prince of Persia, which I think is an out of consensus one, but there's something to it being a very different time in the 80s and 90s with the development of a video game. The perspective of the person making that, you can almost interpret him as lazy at some points. He has this insanely long time horizon to build this. There's just so many interesting personal anecdotes. There's so many interesting anecdotes about where the industry was at this time and where he travels. So it's this neat personal story mixed in with a neat business story, which I just really enjoyed. It was that perfect balance of information and entertainment for me. It's basically a diary, isn't it? Yeah, it's the journals that he kept while he was doing it. That's why you get just a lot of very interesting things mixed in there. You're very good at this. You've always said to me that you should write more of a diary quote unquote, about your life and business and stuff. And I think when you read books like that, it shows you why. When you go down to write them at the end of the day, you think, well, this is nonsense. What's the point of it? It seems like a very obvious thing. There's nothing inspirational here. It's just what happened today. But when you then collect those together over a period of many years, that you can turn them into something super useful, not just for yourself. And your brain will play tricks on you. I think 
one of the most interesting things now is even something like your phone that tells you what you were doing a year ago or a month ago or a week ago. And you just forget your brain has a funny way of just filling in the last three days and making that 95% of what you think reality is versus the last three months or three years, whatever it is. And yeah, it's just funny how distorted your views can become. And then obviously changes what things were like in the past. So when you get these things, those journals documented, it's excellent. And you can't do them after the fact. So that's always a tricky part. Totally. And another plus one for physical media. In this episode, we talked to Amy Astley and she said how important Architectural Digest, the magazine is to their business and particularly even their YouTube efforts. And you don't think there's a massive link between them, but she very eloquently told us that there was. And again, Tammy saying we make books because they're the most enduring pieces of media that you could possibly think of. Again, a fascinating insight for a business that's been built digital native from the ground up for developers. I think 100% agree. It's very interesting. It's also not entirely shocking when you read some of Patrick Collison's blog posts about what he's interested in. And similarly with John and what he talks about, they very clearly have an appreciation for physical infrastructure. And I think just the physical world that we live in. So it didn't shock me. But at the same time, it is interesting. And I think it's a symbolic thing. And it has meaning behind it. So not to be taken with a grain of salt that they're doing it. And we talked a bit about poor Charlie's Almanac. And I remember people this is like eight, nine years ago, people saying, well, I was reading through the list of investing books that I should read. Poor Charlie's Almanac would always be at the top of that list. And then I finally ordered it on Amazon. The price would swing around wildly. So I'm glad someone's sorting that out. And then at time, this huge box turned up. When I picked it up, it was so heavy. And I couldn't believe that this amazing book that everyone kept talking to me looked as big and heavy and bulky and cumbersome as it did. So I'm glad it's getting rectified in some ways because his wisdom and wit does deserve maybe a slightly neater form factor. It was a one-of-one in terms of the uniqueness of that book, (laughs) and it didn't quite fit right on a bookshelf, nor as a coffee table book. It had its very own design that was specific to it. So it'll be nice to introduce a different version of that, I agree. And I was laughing. It's not exactly a beach read is the understatement of the year. But yeah, it's a special one. And I think there are just timeless lessons hidden in there. The other piece I'd want to recommend off the back of this conversation, if you are still interested, go and listen to Patrick O'Shaughnessy's conversation with Patrick and John Collison that we aired on Invest Like the Best a few weeks ago. There's a really good segment in there from Patrick about why they sweat the details, why they care about making things aesthetically pleasing. And he articulates all the reasons that don't necessarily show up in pure cold numbers, but they do in feeling and just culture. So I would recommend listening to that. That's all I had. Likewise. Yeah, this was excellent. A lot of fun. And we will talk to you next week.